Our scripture passage for today is Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 33. Hear now the reading of God's word. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need all of them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that your grace and your mercy would be with us now. Lord, as we come before you on this Lord's Day, would you speak to us again, even though physically we are separated from one another, Spiritually, we are united by your Spirit who dwells within. Lord, you told us that when your saints gather together under the banner of the gospel, that you are with us and you unite us to one another. For we are your church, we are your people. And we ask now, Lord, that as we sit under the word yet again, that you would speak and that you would encourage and empower us to continue of living out our calling of being a blessing to the world. Father, it has been such a fluctuating time this past week, and Lord, we just ask that you would settle our hearts and give us minds and hearts that are firmly rooted in the hope that you are truly the stabilizing hope that we look to. God, now we pray that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, one of the things that you discover as you take your faith more seriously is how often you need to be reminded of things that you already know. Again, one of the things that you discover as you take your faith more seriously is how often you need to be reminded of things that you already know. You know, there's a common belief amongst Christians that says that in order to grow, you have to constantly be learning new things, that you need a constant flux of input teaching you of new doctrines, new theologies, new understandings about the faith. And of course that is true. Part of spiritual growth requires learning new things. But what is more often the case is our growth happens the most when we finally believe the things that we already know and what we've already been taught. You see, the Bible teaches us that the greatest hindrance to our spiritual growth is not ignorance, it's unbelief, not believing, specifically not believing what God says about himself, what he says about you, and what he says about the world to which he has full control over. Therefore, it is fitting to look at the text that we're looking at today, a text that you're all very familiar with because I have preached from this text many times to you throughout my past 10 years with you guys. In fact, those of you men who went to the men's retreat just a couple weeks ago will remember that this very text was preached to you by our guest speaker. And so you're probably wondering, why, Pastor? Why are we visiting this text when you've already preached from it as well as we recently heard it from a guest speaker? Well, because 
this text addresses an issue that is so relevant and so pertinent to us right now in this time that we're in. And that's the topic of worry, anxiety, fear. We're living in some really anxious time, folks. And this whole corona thing, it's kind of like a horror movie monster. It just won't die. And it just keeps coming back at us, reawakening the particular fears that might be unique to you depending on where you're at in life. For example, if you're a student right now, I'm sure that this virus is really terrifying you in terms of what the outcome will be with your educational plans. If you're a professional, no doubt this virus is causing you to worry about job security and whether or not you'll still be able to have a job months from now. Those of us who are parents, no doubt, are trembling with worry because of the fact that we're not sure that this virus is going to hinder our ability to protect and to provide for our kids. And then, of course, those of us who still have our parents with us right now, we're worried about whether or not this virus is going to change that, that potentially that this virus could infect our beloved parents and maybe even cause them to be separated from us because of death. Regardless of who you are, this current situation that we're in right now is so relevant because it's manifesting various kinds of fears that is just percolating throughout our society. So again, we must revisit this text of Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 33, because here Jesus is going to teach us and he's going to remind us of how we can overcome fear. And it is my hope and prayer that as you hear this text and as you hear this message yet again, you'll become that much more convinced and therefore more believing of the things that you already know. So, three things I'm going to share with you today. Our points for today are, you believe you are abandoned, you fear a false future, you are part of the kingdom of God. Here, Jesus gives us two reasons why we worry, right? Then he gives us the final way in which we can overcome the fear of worry, okay? So, let's begin with the first point. Reason number one as to why you are fearful and you are anxious is because you believe you are abandoned. Let's take a look at how our passage begins, verse 25, and it reads as follows, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Now, when you first read this statement of Jesus, you can't help but to be somewhat taken aback to what he's saying, because on the surface level of it, it almost comes across as if Jesus is trivializing our need for food and for clothing. I mean, isn't food and clothing a basic necessity of life? Don't we need to eat? Don't we need to be clothed in order to live? Isn't that what Maslow teaches us in his hierarchy of needs? I mean, if we ever said the words that Jesus is saying to us to a homeless man who hasn't eaten for days, I mean, you see where I'm coming from. Jesus sounds at best clueless and at worst careless to the gravity of our needs. We need to eat. We need to be clothed. How can Jesus seem so heartless? Right? Especially when you consider again what he says at the end of verse 25. What does he say? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? If you read this the wrong way, you could totally see Jesus as coming across as kind of like a heartless jerk. Right? Wrong wrong. You need to understand something. Jesus is not criticizing our need for food or clothing. Rather, he's criticizing our worrying over food and clothing. Let me say that again. Jesus is not criticizing our need for food and clothing. He is criticizing our worrying over food and clothing. Those are two very different things, okay? Because your need for food and clothing 
That says something about you that's absolutely true. And that is you are a creature with genuine needs. But you're worrying over food and clothing. That says something about God that's absolutely not true. And that is what Jesus is criticizing. You see? Now you wonder, what exactly are we saying about God that's not true that Jesus is criticizing? Well, maybe this illustration can help. Back in 1968, there was a movie musical that came out called Oliver. And the opening scene of the movie starts off with a massive cafeteria. And then without warning, hundreds and hundreds of young children start filing out in uniform formation like they're a military drill team. And as they do, they sing the famous song that came out of the movie, Food, Glorious Food. Consider the lyrics of this song. It goes like this, Food, Glorious Food. What wouldn't we give for that extra bit more? That's all that we live for. Why should we be fated to do nothing but brood on food, magical food, wonderful food, marvelous food, fabulous food, end quote. Now, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, you wouldn't know this, but all these children, they all have something in common, and that is they're orphans. Orphans, all of them. And when you realize that, you begin to understand that their obsession with food does not originate from them being foodies. No, no, no. The source, the origin of their obsession of food stems from the fact that they've all been abandoned by those who are called to love and protect them, their parents. And that right there is what Jesus is criticizing when we worry. That is what our worry is claiming about God that isn't true. You see, when we live our life with worry, where we're, we're concerned about our financial security, our job security, our family's livelihood and well-being, we are basically saying that through this act of worrying that God has abandoned us, that he's left us as if we're nothing more than orphans. Which means all the promises that God gives to us throughout the pages of scripture, promises like, I have loved you with an everlasting love, I will never leave you nor forsake you, or I'm with you, even till the end of the age, we're basically saying, no God, sorry. I don't believe it, evidenced by the fact that you choose to worry. Or if I could put it this way, when we worry, we are essentially telling God that we disbelieve who he says he is, specifically in terms of how he feels about us and how he postures himself towards us. Consider these words from Christian author Elsa Fitzpatrick. She writes this quote, The Lord equates our worry with a lack of faith. Why does the Lord say that worry is unbelief? because it has its roots in doubt about God's character. It questions his fatherly care and provision. When I worry about what's going to happen to my life, what I'm really saying is, God, you can't handle this. You're either too weak, uninterested, unloving, or not smart enough to take care of my life. I've got to devote all my attention to sorting this situation out on my own." End quote. Do you hear what she's saying? She's saying that worrying is not the direct result of our needs not being met, rather the direct result of us not believing that God is with us, that he loves us, that he is for us. So if I could put it this way, worrying doesn't happen when you're not able to eat or when you're naked. No, worrying happens when you believe God has abandoned you. Case in point, do you guys know where the church is growing rapidly right now? Do you know what region of the globe where there is mass revival, where people are converting by the millions upon millions? South America and Africa. Those are the two areas right now where the church is growing rapidly. And yet what is so interesting about these two places is that both regions 
are just drenched with poverty, with war, and with deadly diseases. And yet, people living in these areas, in these surroundings, surroundings that are far worse than the situation that you and I are in right now, are coming to faith to the point where they don't worry. In fact, just the opposite. They have vibrant, fervent faith. How do you explain that? In her book, When God Weeps, Christian author Joni Erickson Tata tells a story of how one summer she went on a mission trip to Africa. And she went to an area that ministers to a bunch of orphan kids. And the thing about these orphan kids is that they're all disabled. They were pretty much abandoned by their parents because they were born with no hands, no arms, sometimes multiple limbs. And she went with an organization that gives uh, used wheelchairs to these young orphans as a way for them to try and cope of their situation. On this particular trip, Joni met a young, beautiful girl named uh, Ama. Ama, born with no hands, no legs. And on this night, as she got to meet this young girl and know more about her, she was so ashamed by the fact that this young girl's faith put hers to shame. As they were leaving, it started to rain. And as she was filled with such anxiety and worry over the situation that Amal was left in, she asked the pastor who ministers to these kids this question. Who takes care of the kids when stuff like this happens, when it's raining and there's no food and there's no shelter? You know what the pastor said? The pastor simply turned to her and smiled. God takes care of her. God takes care of her. As she later on reflected that evening, she wrote these words in her book, quote, Oppressive heat, people penniless, a girl with no hands, no legs to walk, no bed, and not even a fan living on concrete. It doesn't sound like God's doing a very good job. But then at that moment, I recalled something a boy who lived in a box by the trash heap said to me earlier that evening. You Westerners are the ones we can't understand. God has given you so much. You have been so blessed. Why are so many people in your country so unhappy? End quote. How is it possible that real orphans who have genuine needs being unmet, who are being exposed to some of the most deadliest diseases out there known to man, not worry? Not worry the way you and I tend to worry. The only possible explanation is that worrying, again, is not the result of our vital needs not being met. Rather, it is the direct result due to the false belief that God has abandoned us. This conversely means that it should be possible to be hungry, to be naked, to be sick with disease, and still not give in to fear, to not worry, because you have the conviction that God is with you. It is possible. Now, I know some of you guys are hearing that, and it's just not easy to believe because you're generally convinced that the only way that you can be alleviated of your fears and your worries is to have the need that you're worried about that's not getting met right now, right? In fact, some of you, if you're brutally honest, would go so further and say, well, pastor, to be honest, I don't really think that my fear and worry has anything to do with God. I don't think it's a spiritual matter. I think it's a financial matter. I think it's a health matter, but really a God matter? I'm not so sure. Well, to try and convince you otherwise, let's go to the second point, which is the second reason why we fall into fear, anxiety, and worry, and that is you fear a false future. Pick it back up with me. We're starting in verse 26. We read, Look at the birds of the air. 
They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Now here, Jesus gives two illustrations to explain the second reason why you and I tend to be filled with worry and fear. One illustration deals with birds and the other deals with lilies in the field or simply flowers in the field. But here's the thing that you need to understand. These two illustrations both point to the same principle and that is our perception of the future. Let me explain by first focusing on the first illustration about birds. Listen again to what he says there. He says, look at the birds, how they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Now, in a nutshell, what is Jesus saying here? What's the essence? What's the point? Here's his point. Jesus is saying that birds, they don't plan. Specifically, they don't plan for the future. And you know why they don't plan? Because they have brains the size of peas. Right? This is why we call someone a bird brain as an insult to convey to them that we think they're not very smart. Right? They have no concept whatsoever of the future. They have no idea about planning and thinking ahead and having foresight. They're just not capable of such things. Now, human beings, on the other hand, well, we're different creatures altogether. For we are capable of planning. We are able to anticipate of what is to come and plan accordingly. So, relatively speaking, birds compared to us are very, very dumb animals. And yet, here's what's so ironic. Jesus is using that very truth to make the very opposite point. Because what Jesus is essentially telling us is, even though birds are dumber than us, they're also paradoxically way smarter than us because they don't do what we do when we worry. And that is they don't imagine a false future. They don't imagine a false future. You know that's what you're doing when you're worrying? You're worrying about a false future, a future that is not going to happen. You know, one of my professors in seminary hit the nail on the head when he once said it this way, worriers are false prophets. Worriers are false prophets. And what he essentially means is, just like the false prophets of the Old Testament who would foretell a gloom and doom scenario in the future that would never happen, so also you and I function that way when we're consumed with such worry. We just over-imagine and we create this scenario fantasy that has no bearing in real life whatsoever and we foretell of a future personal doomsday or Armageddon heading our way when in fact it's never going to happen. And in a sense, Jesus is telling us, come on, guys. Even dumb birds know better than that. Even they are smarter than to not give in to that kind of foolishness. Now, I know some of you guys are hearing me and you're going to get very defensive. Your inner defense attorney is going to rear its ugly head and you're going to try and justify your worrisome state of mind. And you know what? Jesus knew that, which is why he says what he does, starting in verse 28. He says this, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Now, this is very interesting. Here, Jesus makes this reference to Solomon. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Bible, Solomon 
is considered one of the greatest kings next to his father David that Israel ever had. I mean, he achieved a level of achievement that other people did not really reach with the exception of maybe his father David. Okay, And the question is, why is Jesus referencing Solomon and what does he have anything to do with our problem with worry and fear? Well, here's the question. Do you guys know what Solomon was known for? What was he most known for in the Bible that makes him stand out? You know the answer? He was wise. He was famous for his wisdom. And that's exactly what Jesus is alluding to because you see where he says in verse 29, Solomon in all of his glory. That word glory could also be translated as fame or famous. Jesus is alluding to the thing that Solomon was most known for, his wisdom. So here's the question. What does Solomon's wisdom have anything to do with our struggle with worrying. Well, let me tell you. Here Jesus is essentially telling us is that even if you were the smartest, most brilliant, most strategic, forward-thinking kind of person where you can anticipate anything to come with tremendous accuracy, the outcome of your life is still going to be no different than something else that did no planning whatsoever except just standing there looking pretty like a flower. That is what Jesus is telling us. You see, people tend to think that, yes, worrying is stressful. Yes, worrying uh, makes me unpleasant to be around. But you know what? It's worth it. You know why it's worth it? Because better to be safe than sorry. Better to be overprepared than underprepared. You see, this is the kind of rationale that people who struggle with worry try to justify their worrisome state of mind. They say things like, well, it's better to overplan. It's better to be safe than sorry. And Jesus says, no. That's not better. That's dumb. Because whatever positive results that you think your worrying produces, it really provides no tactical advantage over those who don't even worry at all, even those that can't worry, like a non-sentient flower. Take a listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon so you can get a better understanding of what I'm saying here. He says this, quote, Many of God's people are constantly under apprehensions of calamities which will never occur to them. And they suffer far more in merely dreading them than they would have to endure if they actually came upon them in their imagination. There are rivers in their way, and they are anxious to know how they shall wade through them or swim across them. There are no such rivers in existence, but they are agitated and distressed about them. They stab themselves with imaginary daggers. They starve themselves in imaginary famines and even bury themselves in imaginary graves. Such strange creatures are we that we probably smart more under blows which never fall upon us than we do under those which do actually come. The rod of God does not smite us as sharply as the rod of our own imagination does. Our groundless fears are our chief tormentors. End quote. What is Spurgeon saying? He's saying it's absolutely pointless of letting your brain give in to worry. It's just a waste of your mental facilities. It's like studying for an exam that you never had to take or learning a language that no one speaks or no one has ever spoken before. Worrying is absolutely pointless because it prepares you for nothing. Right? And the reason why worrying prepares you for nothing is because you're preparing for is never going to happen in the world that you really live in. You see, the circumstances and situations that we imagine in our minds only exist in our minds. It does not exist in the real world that you truly live in. And see, that's the fundamental problem. 
When you allow yourself to be filled with such dread because you're just overthinking and overimaginating to the point where it's just creating scenarios that just go beyond fantasy because it's just so outlandish, that fundamentally is what causes you to worry. You fear a false future. And by doing so, do you realize what you're doing? By imagining this world that you're going to be in soon, you're disengaging the real world that you're actually in. And by doing so, you're also distancing yourself from the God who created the world that you actually live in. And now what do you feel? You feel distance from God that you misinterpret as God abandoning you when in fact it was you who abandoned God. You see, this is why worrisome is such a problem. Because you misunderstand this distance that you have with God as something that God created when in fact it's you who has disengaged Him by creating an alternate universe that's not even real and thinking that it is and no longer believing the real world where God exists, where He is loving, where He is for you, where He is protecting you. You think that is the false reality. You think that doesn't exist. Brothers and sisters, don't get caught up between what is false and what is true. Know what is true. Know what is false. Otherwise, you're going to fall into a dread and an anxiety that you will not be able to survive. And so here we now come to a point where we see how we overcome worry. We got to stay engaged in this world. The world that is real. The world where our God is real and He exists and He loves you and He is for you. But the question is, how do we do that? How do we stay engaged in this real world? The answer leads me to my final point. You are part of the kingdom. At the end of our passage, Jesus says these words in verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, if you carefully read these verses, you'll come to see that Jesus provides two countermeasures against the two reasons why we tend to fall into worry, fear, and anxiety. Okay? The first countermeasure is what he means by seeking first the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Now, what in the world is the kingdom of God? Well, if you read through the book of Matthew, the recurring idea behind the kingdom of God is Jesus' future reign. It's the idea that when Jesus comes back in the second coming, he's going to firmly establish and firmly rule over all creation. And that means all that is wrong with this world will be made right. All that has been broken will be fixed. All that was lost will be restored to you. Jesus will finally rule. He will finally reign. And all that is evil, all that is sickening, all that is threatening will finally be neutralized, will finally be taken away, and will no longer be a threat to you ever again. Amen. Right? That is what the kingdom of God is. You see, Jesus is telling us this is our certain future. This is something that is definitely coming your way. Not may come your way, not possibly may come your way, but will most certainly come your way. And that is what you need to hold on to, Christian. You need to constantly remember your destiny that you have as members of the kingdom of God. And the way that you establish faith in that belief, in that certainty of the future, is that you always have to look to the collateral, the pledge that Jesus gave us, excuse me, that God gave us as the down payment. Which is what? I already gave the answer. Jesus. Right? Jesus is the down payment. He's the collateral. He's the one that we look to to say, Oh, now I know without a shadow of a doubt, the kingdom of God, that future, that destiny 
is going to be mine. Again, Charles Spurgeon puts it so beautifully when he says it this way. Blessed be God. Our calamities are matters of time, but our safety is a matter of eternity. Unquote. Our future is set because Jesus has come and give eternity to us. Right? Because that's what the gospel teaches. What does the gospel teach? The gospel teaches that Jesus Christ came into the world and he lived an earthly life where he had to face a dismal future. You know how you and I worry about a false future that terrorizes, that makes us worry? Well, that was Jesus' real future. He lived his earthly life knowing that he was going to have to face a certain future that he could not avoid and that he could not reject. It was the future where God would reject him. Where on the cross, he would be living in a state of existence as if functionally God did not exist, or at least his love did not exist. And why did Jesus go through that? He went through that so that that would never be your future. Christian, don't you see? Jesus spared you from the future that you instinctively fear in your false future. It has been taken care of. It has been overcome. It has been paid for through Jesus' suffering on your behalf on the cross. So that's the first thing that you have to remember. The first countermeasure when you fall into a fearful, anxious state of mind. You have to remember your Christian destiny. You have to remember the kingdom of God that has been given to you. The future that awaits for you. And it is coming. Now let's move on to the second countermeasure that Jesus gives to us so that we can overcome fear and worry. And that's where he says in the second half of verse 33, seek his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then what? Seek his righteousness. Now what does Jesus mean by that, to seek his righteousness? Well, it's pretty clear. The his that he's referring to is God's righteousness. And here's the thing. The Bible tells us over and over that God is a righteous God. In fact, one of the most prominent titles that he is given in scripture is that he is the righteous one. And so when Jesus says, seek God's righteousness, what he's really saying is, be like God. Think like God. Behave like God. Act like God. Be righteous like God. Now, question. Who are the people in our lives who think like us, who act like us, who look like us? Isn't it our children? Right? For those of you who don't have children, I'm going to tell you now that when God blesses you with your own biological kids. You'll be shocked to discover how they function like clear HD mirrors pointing right back at you, revealing everything that you sometimes try to deny, right? Because they're spitting images of you. And we are, in Christ, images of God. We are restored images of God because we are children of God. You see, by referring to the righteousness of God and how we're to seek it out, what Jesus is essentially saying is, remember... Who you are you are children of god and the reason why we're children of god again is because of the gospel because what else does the gospel say the gospel says that the one and only true child of god came into the world and he was essentially abandoned treated like an orphan so that those of us who should be orphaned by god are adopted back into his family restored and once again has the assurance and the status as being God's beloved. We are God's children. Do you realize what I'm telling you? Christian identity. Christian identity. Being reminded over and over that I am God's child and He is my Father. 
those are the two things that you constantly need to be remember. You need to remember your Christian destiny. You need to remember your Christian identity. You need to go back to your DI. Whenever you're confronted with the fear and worries of life, you need to say to yourself, Christian, I have a destiny. I have a certain future. And that is the kingdom of God. And I also have an identity. I have a status. I have a standing. I am God's beloved child. When you hold on to your Christian destiny and when you constantly remind yourself of your Christian identity, friends, you will be able to overcome this season. Corona, cancer, financial ruin, hunger, homelessness, death, all of those things will have no power over you. You just have to believe the gospel truth yet again. And so I want to end this message by asking you, do you believe that message, Christian? Do you hold it into your heart to where whenever you're tempted to give in to fear and worry and possibly create a false future, you say, no, my real future is the kingdom of God. And the reason why I have this assurance is because I'm a child of God. And the reason why I have both is because of Jesus. Friends, let me challenge you. In season and in moments of fear and worry and anxiety, look to the cross and look to what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray. Father, in these uncertain times where it's so easy to give in to fear and to worry, I ask, Lord, that you would help us to remember this truth. This truth, Lord, that you have taught us countless of times in our time together as a congregation, as a church family. Father, I just pray for my brothers and sisters, especially now when it just seems that the news and the information that we get just seems more growingly dire and worrisome. Father, I pray against these things in Jesus' name because Jesus is the one who has freed us and will continue to free us from worry and anxiety and fear. And so, Lord, help us to do that now with each passing day. Help us to believe and re-believe and believe yet again when we're confronted with fear and worry, especially in this season. Father, we pray that we can do that so that we can be fearless people, sober-minded, and therefore fully present to the needs and the cries of those around us. Father, may your church truly rise to this occasion and be set free from fear and worry and anxiety so that they can be readily available to being a blessing to their neighbors around us. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.